Hello and welcome to episode one of the brand new Rehumanize podcast. excited to finally make this project happen. We're going to have some great guests and topics for you all in the upcoming months. But before we really jump in, I figured our first episode would be more of an introduction to lay the groundwork for what this podcast is, what Rehumanize International is about, who I am, and all that good stuff. I am your host, Herb Garrity, and I work with Rehumanize International. At Rehumanize, we want to bring an end to all acts of aggressive violence against human beings. We adhere to an ethos called the consistent life ethic, which calls for an opposition to violence against human beings in the form of abortion, unjust war, capital punishment, euthanasia, torture, embryonic stem cell research, assisted suicide, police brutality, etc. Essentially any and all abuse of human beings, regardless of circumstance. So this podcast is going to focus on those and related issues. As a primer, I'm going to do a little bit of self-plagiarism and share part of a talk I gave a few months back at UC Berkeley in California. The title of this talk was Bad Words, How Do Our Words Dehumanize? So let's get into it. What exactly are bad words? The first things that probably come to your mind are a couple of four-letter expletives. While those kind of words are certainly rude to say in a number of contexts, They really aren't so bad, and they're not what I'm focusing on today. The bad words I'm talking about are ones that seek to dehumanize. These often take the form of slurs, words that seek to other a certain class of human beings based on race, nationality, ability, gender identity, sexual orientation, or other immutable characteristics. These words tend to be obvious. When I was called a queer in high school, that was intentional. Slurs are used by people with certain privilege to intentionally other and dehumanize those below them on the social hierarchy. What is perhaps even more insidious than these intentionally dehumanizing slurs, though, is language that dehumanizes unintentionally. This is because even well-meaning people may get caught up in it. But let's take a step back. Why does this matter? Who cares if our words dehumanize? They're just words. Well, for two reasons. The first is that the words we use shape our perceptions. By using dehumanizing language, we negatively shape the way we view groups of people. We begin to view them as subhuman. As studies have shown, when we view someone as less than us, it creates a psychological separation, which makes it easier to commit violence or to permit violence against them. The reality is that each and every human being has inherent dignity by the virtue of our shared humanity. Our language should reflect that. Think historically. What are ways that whole groups of people have been subjugated under the law? Slavery, the Holocaust, genocide of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. In all of these cases and more, before mass violence was able to be perpetrated against these groups, dehumanization had to occur. I think what is most fascinating are the parallels between historical and modern forms of dehumanization. 
The Nazis openly referred to the Jewish people as parasites and other animals, a rhetorical move that the American media, of course, condemned, while then turning around and calling the Japanese yellow vermin to justify things like immoral internment camps, desecration of Japanese soldiers' bodies, and eventually the mass murder of civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In fact, two days after hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children were killed by the American military with the atomic bombs, our president, Democrat Harry S. Truman, defended the decision, saying, The only language they seem to understand is the one we have been using to bombard them. When you have to deal with a beast, you have to treat him like a beast. It is most regrettable, but nevertheless true. Flash forward to today. How many of us have heard pro-choice people say, the fetus is just a parasite on a pregnant woman's body? Or, despite the mountains of evidence that immigrants actually contribute to and improve the economy, have heard them referred to as parasites or dangerous animals? This is similar to the invention of the term welfare queens to paint poor, typically black mothers as undeserving burdens, parasitic on the system. There's a common thread. Instead of viewing people as human beings first, there is often incentive to see them as only tools for financial gain or loss. I think this is pretty clear when we look at the abortion industrial complex, who claim to be necessary because they're there to help people facing crisis pregnancies when in reality, organizations like Planned Parenthood are merely profiting off of those crises by selling lucrative abortion services in place of any actual help. That's why, according to their own annual report, for every 41 abortions Planned Parenthood performed in 2016, they provided only one person with prenatal care, and for every 82 abortions, just one adoption referral. It's why over 96% of pregnant women who walk into a Planned Parenthood for pregnancy-related services walk out without their child, whose body is now either in a medical waste bin or getting ready to be shipped off to the highest-paying researcher. To sustain their business with enough cash to buy their executives' Lamborghinis, actually helping women just isn't going to cut it. It's why they claim that they need millions and millions of our tax dollars or else women will suffer while using their super PAC to pour millions and millions of dollars into influencing elections. Profit is frequently a motivator of dehumanization and violence. It's not a coincidence that on the other side of the political spectrum from Planned Parenthood, we see weapons manufacturers pouring money into electing Republicans who they believe will champion hawkish foreign policies, usually dehumanizing the citizens of whatever country they're campaigning to bomb. I was first really introduced to the way that we so often dehumanize those so-called foreign enemy combatants in an article on antiwar.com. In it, Robert Kohler discusses a piece in New York Magazine that was investigating the discrepancies in NGO reporting of the Iraq-Syria war zones compared to the Pentagon's body count. He states, but the article notes, the official numbers also reveal a sharp uptick in civilian deaths. And suddenly, I have to scream, stop. Every dead person is a human being. At some point, this has to matter. An uptick in civilian deaths? When I deconstruct this language, I encounter a shrug of indifference, a detached sense of necessity. What can you do? If the dead were Americans, 
white Americans, would the words be so cold and detached? On September 11th, 2001, there was an uptick of dead office workers in New York City. Since reading this, it has really shifted my perception of those impacted by the military-industrial complex and how my own language can unintentionally contribute to the ideology that some lives matter more than others or that some deaths are somehow more tragic than others. It matters how we talk about these issues because it affects how we see them and on a societal scale can affect policy. Take the recent wave of high-profile celebrity suicides we saw last summer. Of course, these losses are tragic. All over social media, there have been eulogies for the ones who have lost their battle with depression and suicidal ideation, along with calls for mental health awareness and wider access to treatment. This is undeniably a good thing. However, I have to point out a small inconsistency I can't help but notice. Some of those eulogizing the deaths of wealthy celebrities are the same people pushing for greater access to assisted suicide in our country. On the surface, this is odd to me. However, when you dig a little deeper and view the issue through the lens of the historical oppression and dehumanization of disabled people, it starts to make sense. Very few proponents of assisted suicide will stand by the idea that this right to die should be available to all Americans. Nowhere in America can I, a physically healthy 22-year-old who has been diagnosed with depression, be treated with physician-assisted suicide. Yet, rather, as it stands now, the patient must have some sort of illness or qualifying condition. It is for this reason that nearly every major national disability rights group that has taken a position on assisted suicide opposes bills to legalize the practice. They intimately understand that the way assisted suicide legislation has been drafted creates a clear contrast between the rights of the disabled and ill and the rights of the physically healthy. It is even more concerning when examining the mountains of research that establishes that mental health issues, including suicidal ideation, are frequently comorbid with disabilities, particularly terminal illnesses. Assisted suicide, like many acts of discrimination, relies on the idea that some lives are worth more than others and creates a legal double standard where some are given suicide prevention and others given suicide assistance in the form of a poison pill. This is just part of a long history of the sick and disabled being treated as subhuman and being given grossly different standards of care. Think back to the horrible case of Terry Schiavo and thousands of people who get referred to simply as vegetables. Talking about disabled people in this manner is so ingrained in our culture that I often don't think we notice that we're engaging in language that incorrectly categorizes human beings as mere objects. Yet this form of non-sexual objectification is all too common. One example is the way that we use certain people's pronouns. Something I see online a lot is people referring to trans or gender nonconforming people with it pronouns. When you do this, not only are you not respecting how the person has asked you to refer to them, you're refusing to refer to them as a person at all. Calling someone it doesn't remove their gender. It disregards their humanity. 
And this is being done to a segment of the population that is already at a much higher risk of experiencing physical violence and discrimination. Another version of this that actually always strikes me as quite comical is the tendency to call preborn children it. It's a boy. How far along is it? I don't actually think this is as dangerous as the other forms of dehumanization that I've been talking about, but I do think it's interesting. I wonder, when we as a culture finally start recognizing the humanity of preborn children, if this kind of speaking will slowly fade away. Another way humans are treated as something other than humans is when they're referred to or treated as simply property. This concept of people as property has been the ideological basis of nearly all instances of slavery, from the Jewish people in Egypt to American chattel slavery to the modern exploitation of incarcerated humans through forced and severely underpaid labor within the prison industrial complex today. This ideology is also prevalent in the ways that our law treats the advancement of reproductive technology. According to the law, embryonic human beings created via in vitro fertilization are the literal property of their parents. In 2018, a freezer malfunctioned at a fertility clinic in Ohio, causing the death of thousands of tiny human beings. Do you know what the bereaved parents seeking justice were offered? A refund. When one couple attempted to sue for the wrongful death of their unborn child, the judge wrote, The parents may believe that the embryos they created are already persons, but that is a matter of faith or their personal beliefs, not of science and not of law. This leads us to one of the most effective forms of dehumanization, the idea of human non-persons. It's so effective because it relies on partial truth. They're not denying the humanity of the person or group they're attempting to oppress, rather, just that the standard isn't as important as we think. This is why we have the anomaly of a pro-choice embryologist or doctor. No self-respecting believer in science will deny that the product of a same species reproduction is also a differentiated member of that same species, or that during human reproduction, what is produced at fertilization or conception is a genetically distinct, whole, living human organism. Rather, they will try to say that this human with distinct DNA is not a human being or a person. While I appreciate the work of countless pro-life activists who came before me, who have fought to include the preborn within the legal definition of personhood, I'd like to humbly suggest an alternative. I contend that this very concept of personhood is an illegitimate social and legal construct that throughout history has almost exclusively been used to discriminate against whole classes of human beings. I believe in human rights, not person rights, because the definition of who can or can't be a person is ultimately a political and ideological debate that ignores basic scientific facts. If there could ever be a category of a human non-person, then personhood is either a useless signifier at best or dangerous and deadly at worst. If we are going to claim to be supporters of human rights, we must apply them to all humans, regardless of age, size, level of development, location, 
or level of dependency. Earlier, I said that there were two reasons we should avoid dehumanizing language. The first being how our words shape our perceptions. The second, though, and I think possibly more important, is that dehumanizing language simply isn't true. In our culture seeped in fake news, it's necessary to state, truth matters. Without correctly calling something what it objectively is and understanding it as such, it's impossible to come to an accurate moral position on how to treat that thing. And when that thing might be a human being, it really matters. To dehumanize means to use our words to take away the humanity of someone. But here's the thing. That can't really be done. Our humanity belongs to us, despite the words people may use. Regardless of our age, size, race, gender identity, sexual orientation, nationality, immigration status, ability level, or anything else, we are all equally human. This isn't an opinion. It's a scientifically demonstrable fact. We gain our humanity when we come into existence at the moment of sperm-egg fusion during fertilization, and we do not lose it when we cross a border or develop a disability or take cross-sex hormones or commit a crime or do anything other than die. Humans are never objects or parasites or beasts. We are always human, from, as they say, womb to tomb. Thanks for tuning in to episode one of the Rehumanize podcast. For more information, check out rehumanizeintl.org.